0: There was a certain amount of, you know what, um, what what's that phrase, I'm fed up, I'm not going to take it anymore. I just thought, I don't need the publishing industry, and I would like to be able to do this on my own.
1: Welcome to The Author Biz, the show that's all about the business of being an author. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 30 wherever you are, however you listen. Thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Just for a moment, imagine that you're the best-selling author of a highly regarded mystery series published by one of the world's largest publishers, and you notice that most of the sales of your novels are ebooks. When it came time to negotiate that next contract with your publisher, what would you do? My guest today is Harry Bingham. He's been an author for 15 years. And in that time, he's had two agents, four publishers, seven editors, and 13 books. That's another way of saying he's been around the block as a traditionally published author. As you'll hear in the interview, Harry saw how his Fiona Griffiths crime fiction series was being marketed and sold in the United States. And he suggested a change to the ebook royalties from his Big Five publisher. Not surprisingly, they disagreed. So Harry made the remarkable decision to walk away from a publisher that he'd enjoyed working with and what he felt like was doing a really good job with his books. Harry joins us today to explain why he walked away from his U.S. publisher and the opportunities he sees available to authors today in what he calls the fourth era of publishing. If you like what you hear in this episode, you can subscribe to the show at the AuthorBiz website or at iTunes. If you do have an iTunes account, please leave a review. They're as valuable on iTunes as they are on Amazon. Now let's get on with the interview. Harry, welcome to the Author Biz. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me. You have just published The Strange Death of Fiona Griffiths, and it's the third book in your Fiona Griffith series. Before we get into the publishing process for the book, which was pretty interesting, um, first tell us about Fiona and tell us about the new book.
0: <laughs> okay, well, yeah, yeah so, Stephen, you've read it, so so you kind of know that Fiona herself is, is the centre of the series, and she is not another stereotypical police woman. <laughs> no. uh, she really is very unusual woman, and it's all first person. It's narrated first person present tense. You're in Fiona's head the entire time. And she's just an extraordinary person, and she's got this quite unusual past. So kind of the big sort of USP about Fiona in a way is that when she was a teenager, she suffered from a a, a true-to-life condition. I mean, people really have this thing called Cotard syndrome, and Cotard syndrome is where the sufferer believes themselves to be dead. So for two years as a teenager, Fiona was walking around thinking she was a corpse, and she's kind of in recovery now. She's in remission. But, but that thing never really leaves her. And so you've got somebody with a very, very unusual view of the world. She's a very, very talented, bright woman. Very tough, very vulnerable. She's got a unique voice. And, you know, it, it, it's a lover or hater kind of character. If, if you like the, the voice of Fiona, the personality that she is, you'll kind of get addicted to it. Um, and I have to say, you know, I have just adored writing this series. It's been nothing like nothing else I've ever done.
1: Let me jump in here for a second and and say that when I started reading it, I, I was first taken back a little bit by by The Voice, and I read the first few pages, then I went back and read them again, and then she just grabbed me by the throat and pulled me through the rest of the book. It was is such an intimate experience reading the book in this first-person, present-tense style that... Um even, even when I'd set it down for a little while, it was spinning around in my head. It's just a brilliant book. And uh, we talked a little bit before we came on the air. I, I cursed you a little bit because now I've got to go back and, and buy the first two books and, and read those as well. So it's just a fabulous, fabulous series. And um, I'm so excited that there are two more books that I can go back and read. I just wish I would have read them in order.
0: Yeah, well, the, the, it helps to read them in order, but it doesn't matter too much. And and to be quite honest with you, I think the strange death of Fiona Griffiths for me that that's my favourite of, of the three. And and there's another one coming later this year. Um, but but you're right. What you say about it being quite a committing read as a reader? It's like it's it's all or nothing. You've got to go for it, and and you've either got to climb into this woman's head or decide that you don't want that experience. But if you if you go for it, then you're there, and you're going to be locked in.
1: Yes, and so I, I can assure you that. The first two books will be the next two books that I read, because I just <laughs> finished The Strange Death last night. So I'm going to go and get the next two and just work my way through them and really enjoy every second of it. You publish this on your own, uh, as opposed to the first two were traditionally published, something happened. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that this was the option book and things didn't work out, so you decided to publish it on your own. Um, you wrote a fascinating blog post on Jane Friedman's blog uh, regarding this process, a little bit of the process, and uh, let me get the title here. Uh, I don't. It's essentially why would why would an author walk away from a big five publisher? And I'll link yeah. to the article in the show notes. And it has just taken off in terms of interest. I shared it, and I got more comments on sharing something that you had written than uh, most things I. Share on that I've written myself. So you've really struck a nerve with this. So let's let's talk about this a little bit.
0: It, well, it's it's really interesting, and and yeah, I I said to you, Stephen, not, nothing else I've ever done has has quite had that kind of level of sort of viral interest. Okay, so so the background is I'm a conventionally published author. I've been an author here in the UK for, for 15 years, um, and you know I haven't made big waves in the US. It's not been a kind of key market for me. I've I've sold elsewhere in the world. But anyhow, I, I write the Fiona Griffith series, the first two books. They're bought up by a big UK publisher, so, so part of one of these big five kind of multinationals. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it sells in Europe, and it's bought up in the US, the first two books by Random House. Um, and I have a fantastic editor there, a, a fantastic imprint, so um my editor there was kate misiak who is um what i mean lee child is is one of her authors so so she's a, she's a big name in the field and mm-hmm. i was really excited you know i couldn't have had a better a better place to kind of park in new york as it were <laughs> um and the first you know she 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 liked the stuff that i was writing we got on very well the, the first two books she published and they made money now that this is kind of the curious thing that they got amazing reviews the first book had a star reviewed in Star Review in Publishers Weekly, Star Review in Kirkus. It was a crime book of the year for the Boston Globe and the Seattle Times. Plenty of other nice comments from elsewhere. Second book, something a bit similar. So people loved it and it made money. So I'm kind of thinking, great. I mean, I've got a nice relationship with Random House in New York. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Um, Hadn't occurred to me that this was publishing and anything, anything could go wrong. And the, the issue was this. It was... Random House was trying to market my book primarily as a $27 hardback. That was kind of their lead product. Mm-hmm. And people these days, now, look if you're buying Lee Child or Kathy Reichs or Patricia Cornwell or any of these big, big, big names, you know exactly what you're going to get. And yes, maybe you treat yourself and spend $27 on their latest hardback. And I, I can get round my head around that. Or, you know, you're giving a gift to, to, to your mother at Christmas then sure, that the $27 hardback is a perfectly good product to buy. But that's not how you introduce yourself to a kind of quirky new sort of European noir, you know, debut crime writer. Um, the $27 hardback just is a, a lousy discovery product. Um, and of course, they were launching an ebook as well. And of course, there was a paperback to follow the, the hardback. But, but the, the campaign was centered on that hardback. And that campaign basically failed. Um, so they sold a fair few hardbacks, but quite a lot of the ones they thought they had sold came back from retailers because the retailers hadn't shifted them because the hardback didn't do as well as people had wanted. The retailers were reluctant to take the paperback. So it had this sort of weird outcome where the ebooks did perfectly fine. And we had earned out my advance by the hardback stage. Um But the hardbacks themselves had failed. The the whole print campaign had basically failed. And my bit of Random House was set up as a print publisher first and foremost. So they didn't know how to handle – I mean, to me, the logical thing was, look, if you're launching a new author, offer cheap e-books, get an audience. Once you've got that audience, introduce print, probably with the paperback first, and then once you've got a sort of solid enough print market, start bringing out the $27 hardbacks. That's how I'd have done it as a, as a kind of businessman. Um, that's not how they were set up to do it. Not how they thought about doing it. They they just weren't able to do
1: it like that. And, so, and for years, that's the way crime series were introduced. You'd have you, not the it's, ebook, it's, obviously, but you'd start out with the paperback, you build the audience and all of a sudden there's a hardback version.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, so my first book I sold to Harper Collins here in the UK um in october 1998 that's how long ago it was and they said to me then hey harry would you mind if we ditched the hardback completely and launched you straight into paperback and they asked me that thinking you know did i want the prestige of a hardcover and i thought look if we're launching a product that is aimed at the mass market let's put all of the marketing energy and pizzazz behind the mass market edition why it's just dumb to do anything else mm-hmm. so you know that was more than 15 years ago now And it it strikes me that there are parts of the New York industry that haven't yet caught up with that kind of thinking.
1: Well, let me stop you here. You've you've written a series of blog posts on your website, perrybingham.com, and in that you give a lot of detail, uh, you share a lot of financial information. So I I don't normally ask people questions like this, but since you've already publicly shared it, I'm, I'm going to ask you to share with the listening audience what the advance was for that book in 1998.
0: Uh, okay, I got um, a. And, and I mean, in terms of the disclosure, I think a lot of authors are timid about telling the real truth because they think they might harm their careers or damage their relationship with publishers. And I just think, actually, you know what? Let's just tell our stories. Let, right. Let's get it out there, and people can make up their own minds. So, you know, that's the reason for my disclosure. But yeah, in answer to your question, uh, I got a two-book deal um, back then, nineteen ninety-eight. That was one hundred and sixty thousand pounds, which would equate to, I guess, two hundred and seventy thousand dollars, something like that.
1: Okay, and then I think that makes the idea of releasing the book, the first book in the in in the two book deal, as a paperback, even more interesting. Yeah, they really went for it, mm-hmm. and and
0: it really worked. They, they 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 sold in big volumes with that um, first paperback, and they did it because they had concentrated all of their marketing budget on the mass market release, and it worked. Now, things worked a little differently That back then. The, the industry was different from what it is now, right. but
1: it worked. You detail all of this on your blog, and it is absolutely fascinating reading. I'm going to link to it. And I I would really encourage people to just read all the way through from post number one. I think you just posted number 11 yesterday, and we're not to the end of the story yet, which is a very gripping publishing story.
0: (laughs) We're we're, we're getting closer. Um, And I'll probably release the whole thing as a a PDF when I'm done.
1: Okay, so that's just essentially background for where we are now. Now let's leap back into the present day and and your decision – and, and the process behind publishing the third Fiona book.
0: Good. good. I mean, it's a random house. Um, it doesn't quite know what to do. It likes me as an author. It likes my books. It's getting amazing kind of critical feedback on the books, but it can't make these things work in hardback. So I said to them, look guys, let's just, you know, work in ebook, um, ebook only. I'll give you a free option on print. Um, you know, when you're ready to, to go back into print you can have first dibs on that. Um, and, and we'll just work like that. And they were like, Hey, would you do that? And I said, sure, <laughs> why not? Huh. But I wouldn't want to give you 75% royalties on that ebook. Cause I'm not quite sure how you'd add that much value. And I was, like, I didn't expect them to to kind of roll over without a negotiation. I thought they'd come back to me and say, Harry, it's really, really important that we get 75% royalties on an ebook. We're going to add a ton of value to, you know, your product. Here are all the amazing things that we're going to do. You're not going to be able to do those things yourself. Um, yeah, you're taking a smaller share of the pie, but my goodness, it's going to be a much bigger pie. And the weird thing, and Stephen, you know, you've been in business. It, it, it's, it's strange to me that they didn't come back to me with any argument at all. They just, that was when I said I wasn't happy with 75%, giving them 75%, that is accepting 25% of ebook royalties. Um, they just, that was the end of the conversation. And I think that does speak volumes about, I don't know, about the state of play in the New York publishing industry at the
1: moment. Well, let me ask a, a question. I I'd, I'd mentioned the option book earlier. I'm assuming you had a two book deal uh, at, at first and yeah. then this third book was the option book yeah exactly okay so you uh, did not come to terms with them and then did you think to yourself at all maybe i'll take this to another publisher or have my agent chop it to another publisher did, did you just yeah, my, jump I mean, to
0: my my agent kind of thought about it and, and i you know i, I didn't say no but 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 the issue was, if Random House couldn't make this thing work in mm-hmm. print, there's no particular reason why anyone else would find it an attractive proposition. And I kind of thought, look, I'm actually confident enough in these books that I wouldn't want to get a small deal with a second-tier publisher. Um, wh- why would I do that? If, if you know, in, in the U.S., you, you see different figures on the total ebook market. But the one that matters to me, so so roughly a third of the value of, of the fiction market is is ebook. Um but in crime it's more like 75%. And if you look at kind of debut crime, in other words, crime excluding the really big names, then mm-hmm. it's probably more like 85 or 90% ebook. So I just thought I don't need the print market. I can find a readership without that. And I felt confident in my ability to do it. So yeah, I was, that was the kind of the negative reason for for going into self-publishing. I just thought, you know, I I, I don't think there's a better offer there that will really add value to me. But I also thought, you know what, I've had some poor experiences with publishers over the years, as detailed in my blogs. I've Mm -hmm. had some very good ones too. But there was a certain amount of, you know what, um, what what's that that phrase, I'm fed up, I'm not going to take it anymore. I just thought, I don't need the publishing industry. And I would like to be able to do this on my own. And that was the really strong positive motivation for self publishing. And, you know,
1: I'm I'm really excited to be doing it. I also wanted to get into the four eras of the publishing business that you mentioned in the blog post, for people that haven't read it, let's just talk through it, because I, I really liked the shift between the third and the fourth era that we're sort of going through right now and the way you explained that. I, I think that's that will be very instructive to listeners.
0: Okay. I, I mean, just, just to quickly recap then, kind of the, the first era um, was, you know, back in the days when publishers, when price discounting wasn't a big factor, publishers had money for marketing, and they could have put up posters and, you know, do do print advertising and that kind of thing now i got in on the very tail end of that and basically watched it die within the space of the f- the first or second books that i did um the the second phase was all of the publishers marketing budgets were being used to buy space in in bookstores so the, you know barnes and noble if you wanted to be front of store in barnes and noble you had to pay for that slot mm-hmm. so the marketing budget you know, still existed, but it was basically you were just buying visibility in in retail stores. Um, so those were the first two eras, but that was still pre Amazon. Then you get the, the dawn of Amazon, um, and really, kind of everything changes. Um, the, a lot of the volumes are moving online. Um, you have the dawn of the ebook, and in fact, you know, the publishers were in this strange situation where they were being threatened. By the ebook, because big, big retailers like Borders was going out of business. So publishers were losing huge volumes; they were losing big, big traditional customers, and that was scary. On the other hand, they were making these massive ebook margins. And so, what they were losing with the left hand, they, they were gaining with the right. And in fact, more than gaining. I mean, publishers today are making more money than they've ever made in their financial history. So this idea that Amazon is just destroying publishers. It's not actually borne out by the facts, <laughs> so so that's the third era. You've got Amazon's really big, lots of the the has migrated to ebook, but kind of everyone's happy. Amazon's making money, the publishers are making money The, the authors aren't doing quite as well, but no one cares about them. Um, so so that's the third era, but the the fourth era that I'm talked about in that post, and this is we're at the very very start of it, and who knows how far it'll go? But it's the ability of authors like myself to say to big conventional publishers, good conventional publishers as well. Like I say, Random House didn't put a foot wrong. They're they're a first class outfit. Um, But it's our ability to say, you know what? I don't need you. I'm going to do this on my own. And that is the first time really in pretty much the history of books that authors have had that ability to, to reach a mass market of readers. Without some intermediary, um, I'm obviously using Amazon as a retailer, but without some kind of publisher in between us and our readership, and that I think is a really, really thrilling ability.
1: Indeed, um, let's let's talk for a little bit about books, book sales in the U.S. Hardcover books. You're talking about the idea of earlier of, of paying twenty seven dollars for a Lee Child book. The reality is that in the U.S., I don't know what it's like in the U.K. But the minute a Lee Child book goes out, it's at the top of the bestseller list. So all of the big book store chains over here are selling it at a 40% discount. So your yeah. book is selling for $27. <laughs> Lee Child's book is selling for $17. And yeah, that exactly. really makes it a no-brainer for people to, to choose the Lee Child's book.
0: Exactly. And you would think that it was therefore also a no-brainer for the publisher to say about the Harry Bingham hardback, why would anyone buy the $27 Hardback that is a totally untried and untested product as far as the consumer is concerned, Mm -hmm. Um, as as opposed to that, you know, discounted $18 hardback or whatever. No, I I agree. And the the UK market, I think, in some ways is a little bit more evolved, in some ways a little bit less evolved than in the US. But the hardback market here is really dying. And so gift books, yes. Bestsellers, yes. But more and more authors are seeing their books come out in kind of trade paperback first, and then in paperback. And the trade paperback is a kind of nice, it's a bigger, chunkier, nicer looking paperback. But but the hardback market here is dwindling.
1: You're writing a series. You've written two books in a series. You're getting ready to write the third book. There are a lot of people who are facing what you're facing, hundreds, thousands, probably thousands of authors that are considering doing what you're doing, and they, they see what you see. They're considering doing it, uh, but there's a fear of continuing a series without owning the backlist. You chose to go ahead and do that.
0: I mean, I wanted to. I wanted to come to an arrangement with Random House whereby we would kind of, uh, yeah, well, I would kind of re, regain some control over the the, the backlist without um you know but by by giving them some some share of of the books that were to come and I I couldn't make that work with them Mm -hmm. um I I think if I'd had a really long tale of books with them I would have really had to pause as it was I I know that this series is you know going on um for for a significant length of time so losing the first two books losing control over them in the end was it that big of an issue you 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 jumped into the series at book three and it made perfect sense to you mm-hmm. so i don't need people to read from book one uh there will be plenty more books to follow so yeah, it was something i certainly thought about something i tried to engage random house in a conversation with but but that didn't work and for, for me it panned out as yeah you know strike out on my own now but what i would say that this is slightly tangential but one big advantage i've got in publishing as an indie is i am writing a series with the same character going all the way through which means that kind of if you if you like the right publish repeats model mm-hmm. is easy for me because i've got a natural s- series of books to do that with so it's not like i'm writing i'm not like a literary novelist where each book is going to be very different from my, my last um I, I would hope that i will take readers from book to book with me Um, And that makes it easy for me to do things like start to build up a mailing list and hope that each time the snowball gathers a little bit more momentum. But, you know, I think I'll be three or four books into my publishing journey before I can really say definitely has my self-publishing experiment worked or not.
1: You raise an interesting point with the… The email list idea. There there are so many people that are traditionally published now. Indie published authors have a little bit of an advantage in terms of sending people to their email list because they can just put it at the front of the book or the back of the book um, to encourage readers to do that. Uh, It's not something that most traditionally published authors have the opportunity to do. So I'm assuming that when you started this, you either had no email list or a very small email list.
0: Yeah, that's correct. I, I mean, and, but, you know, on that point, what what the heck are conventional publishers doing in not gathering those emails? I, I, I honestly don't understand it. And I, I, I am now asking Orion in the UK to put that kind of email list request in every book, every print book, every ebook. Um, and I hope they're going to do that. But you know it, it's such a powerful tool, and nothing converts like emails. And you know it, it, that, that's not just data from the books industry, but it's it's data from across any industry that that, that email lists convert something like fifty times better or a hundred times better than than Twitter followings, for example. <laughs> so you know, collect those emails. It's it's free. <laughs>
1: Yes, and that's something that we preach on this show a lot. So that's that's the reason I'm I'm bringing this up. If you could step back in time to the first Fiona book, would you have done a little bit more on your website to drive traffic so that you could collect email addresses? Yeah, 100%. Okay. I, I did notice I went back in the history of your, your website it, through the archives, and basically there's very little there until you – obviously until you made the decision that you were going to self-publish
0: yeah did you know i mean um you know that that, that's correct now weirdly i was actually in new york i'd had a meeting with with random houses was the first time i met them and spoke to their kind of digital marketing person and she said hey harry you got to have a website you got to have a facebook page we need to set all this up for you um so I let her set up the Facebook page, but I said, don't worry, I'll set up the website and, and did it. I mean, I did it in an afternoon. It's not a big thing to do. And I'm reasonably savvy about those things. Was, and I kind of thought she was going to be engaged and, you know, let's get you guesting on, on shows like this. Let, let's, let let's get you out there. They did absolutely nothing. I mean, nothing that I'm aware of. And so my, my site just kind of, I created it like on my laptop on an afternoon in New York thinking, Hey, you know, these guys really want me to have this, they never made any use of it that that I'm aware of Um, and certainly didn't give me any kind of guidance as as to what they wanted me to do. So I kind of think, yeah, you know, when when you're independently publishing, you're actually kind of thinking much more about all aspects of your publication process. And, you know, there are big parts we just can't touch. So I do not have the same ability to get a review from the New York Times as as Random House does. I mean, and that's going to remain true forever in the future i can't see that mean, meaningfully changing i can see it shifting a bit but but not massively changing um but but you know there are other parts of the process where we really can think about it and do it better and be more agile and be more personal as well so like there's no way you would be you sign up to a corporate mailing list if there was a thing in the back of a book that said hey do you want to be part of random houses you know blitz everybody once a month mailing this you mm-hmm. go no i don't i get too many emails of that sort anyway but if you get an email invitation from an author who says look sign up to my mailing list you can unsubscribe anytime but it will come that email will come straight from my laptop to you and hey if you want to ask me questions you just hit the reply button now that's a totally different proposition so so there are definitely advantages that we as kind of indie authors have over over the big boys if
1: we take advantage of them
0: yeah, if, if if we're smart enough to take advantage of it, right?
1: Yes. Now, you, let's go back to you setting up this website. As you said, you're you're fairly proficient technically, but you did it. You did it in an after, in an afternoon. Did you use, you did use WordPress? Because I could I could see where your site was hosted. So you used WordPress. Um, you did it yourself. You have total control over your website, and now you're able to update it at will. You don't have to hire people. You don't have to outsource any of this. You just did it. You found a couple of images and you created yeah. a pretty nice looking website.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. And and an author website doesn't have to be that sophisticated. I mean, you know, it, it needs contact information. It needs a bit of blog material. It needs a little bit about the books. It needs some reviews. It, but it, it it's not designed to be a complicated thing. And people don't want a ton of content. They just want good, relevant content.
1: And we want to know what the current book is. We want to know when the next book is coming out. And for me, I want to be able to sign up for the email list so that I can get an email when the new book comes out. I don't want to have to search for it because I'll most likely miss it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, however much you like a book, you you know, you you finish the book and you might log mentally that the next one is coming out in September or whatever. You're not going to remember in September. So, yeah, just a little nudge from the author saying, hey, the book's out in a week. You can pre-order it here. And and that pre-order thing, by the way, um, so I had, you know, by the time I published The Strange Death of Fiona Griffiths, I'd had the book on pre-order for some little time mm-hmm. so that I had a hit of, you know, a few hundred mm-hmm. um, orders on the day of publication, which instantly put me onto some of those Amazon bestseller lists. Not very high up, but, you know, it gave me instant visibility on Amazon where just launching the book without that little kick to start with would have dissipated that that um, that energy.
1: Unless you had a big email list where you could just send everybody in right away and just say the book is, is has been released today and you weren't in a position to do that. But you may be right. by the but, time but the even, next one comes even, out.
0: Even then you might as well uh, you, you know give it, let's say, six weeks of, of pre-order mm-hmm. and then hit your email list a week or so beforehand, and then you get everything detonating together.
1: You mentioned reviews, and in the article, I I think it was in the article or the post you wrote on Jane's site, you mentioned uh, buying a Kirkus review and that you felt like that was worth the money. Um, Explain that.
0: Okay, so so, so the deal, indie authors can get a a review from Kirkus Reviews, and Kirkus Reviews is one of the two big, big, big preview Mm -hmm. publications in the U.S. The other one is Publishers Weekly very well respected. Um, You can buy a review. Um, The cost is $425. um, And you get the exact same team of reviewers delivering the exact same type of reviews as publishers get. Now, but you're not buying a good review. You're buying an honest review. And Kirkus's policy tends not to be to rip a book apart. So let's say, you know, the book just isn't very good. They'll probably spend 280 words of a 300-word review describing what happens in the book. And then they might give you a final line that just says, yeah, this seems fairly routine and it wasn't that well written. So you might spend $400 and have absolutely nothing that you could quote, that you would want to quote, um, you know, on your Amazon blurb or anywhere else. So I think there's a lot of scepticism probably rightly amongst a lot of indie authors about whether that 400 bucks is worth it or not Mm -hmm. my case was a little bit different i'd already had two starred kirkus reviews so i kind of knew that the team liked my books um and i was pretty confident in number three because i thought it was the best of the three so for me being able to publish something independently but having some real external verification of the book was a pretty simple calculation i only need to sell you know let's say um uh, you know 150 200 books um to, to to pay off that review and and for me that was that was worth it and you know sure enough i did get a very lovely review from kirkus and i'm quoting it everywhere
1: <laughs> of course now you're in the strange position now of attracting readers like me who will go and buy your new book at a low price and then go and buy the first two books at a higher price much higher price and you will undoubtedly make more money on the lower price book than you do on the higher price books
0: well, that, you know, because that's 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 the sweet thing isn't it about indie publishing it's like you can halve, especially you know transitioning from from the traditional industry i can halve my ebook price mm-hmm. and double my royalties i mean what's wrong with that i was at a conference here in the uk where um, you know the head of a little brand a big publishing firm here um, talked about indie authors destroying the value of the book by by the low ebook pricing, and she actually got a clap from all the people in the room and I thought, Hold on, hold on, destroying the value of the book we are doubling our royalties we 're <laughs> halving the price and doubling our royalties we 're giving a better deal to readers we 're getting a much better deal as authors we 're not destroying the value of the book we 're just making life hard for publishers, and you know what it 's not our job to make life easy for publishers.
1: Is your Do you still have the agent that you had while you were traditionally published, and is, is that agency working on your other rights for these books? Yeah,
0: yeah, sure. And, you know, remember that I am um, still conventionally published in the UK, so I'm working with Orion, which is part of okay. Hachette, which is right. one of the big five publishers. Um, and, and, you know, my books are still being conventionally published in France and in Germany and in Italy and Spain and all, all these other places. So, you know, most of my relationships are still 100% conventional. And and my agent I have to say was fine about me going indie he could in the US he, he was he could follow the logic let's just, just supposing it happens the book goes crazy um it sells a ton of stuff um as ebook um some print publishers get interested and said hey Harry we'd love to do a hardback we'd love to do a paperback we think we've got a platform now let's talk about it well you know I don't know if I'd say yes or no but I'd certainly talk about it
1: right right okay now let's go back to the things you needed to worry about when you started through this process uh, you mentioned some of those in the post, but uh, you're in a you're in a somewhat unique position uh, compared to most authors. You started a business called the Writer's Workshop about a, about a decade ago. Yeah, about, yeah, a decade ago, and
0: and so the, the, our core service at the Writer's Workshop is, is basically a, a team of freelance editors, and some of those will have authorial backgrounds. Some of them will be publishers from with sort of big five editorial backgrounds. Okay, but so- but we give anyone who wants editorial advice. And typically that'll be, you know, our typical client will be they're writing a novel. They want to get traditionally published. um, They have either been rejected by a literary agent or they know their book isn't yet there and they want our help in improving their work. Um, So that's kind of the typical thing that we do. Um, So yeah, if I needed to buy editorial, and by the way, I'm a big, big believer in editorial services. I've just never seen a single one of my books not get better from good editing. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I'm more experienced than most authors. I, I mean, I'm now in the middle of my 10th novel, and I've written some nonfiction stuff as well. So, you know, I've, I've knocked around a lot. But, but my books get better from good editing. Um, so if I didn't get editorial work from Orion, I would definitely pay for it. And as it happens, I run a company that makes it very easy for me to get it. But, you know, the Writer's Workshop or, or, or any other service like it, you, you can offer, you, you, you can acquire for perfectly reasonable money. I mean, you're talking... Uh, hundreds of dollars but but you shouldn't be paying more than a thousand bucks really you, you, you can get editorial advice that is at least as good as big five editorial quality but remember that a big five editor probably has a day day and a half maximum to read your book in detail write some editorial notes zap that over to you follow up as necessary um so whereas with a kind of freelance service a if you need multiple rounds of editing it's easy to get them um and I would say that our typical editor gives more detailed, constructive advice than I typically get from a Big Five editor. I should say my editor at Orion is fantastic, and I'd very happily employ him as a (laughs) freelancer. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you you, you can get Big Five editorial advice, absolutely no problem.
1: Okay, and that's something that a lot of people are scared to death of, this whole process. There's this sense that I've been professionally edited, and if I... If I'm not with a big five publisher, then I can't be professionally edited again okay. at the same level. Well, let, and that's let, just let, not true.
0: No, it's not It's not true. I mean, let, let's let's go through the various things. And remember that big publishers frequently outsource a lot of things, including editing. I mean, not typically a, a big crime novel like this published by Random House. but But big publishers outsource a lot. And all of those – a lot of those skills are easily purchasable. So editorial, yep, easy to purchase – you know we'll happily sell any of your listeners that service but they can get it from other places as well There's i mean we are good at what we do but mm-hmm. you know there are others copy editing that's more expensive again i get mine from orion so it's free but you know you, you can get and big publishers outsource copy editing all the time 1500 dollars that would be about par for, for that sort of thing that that's quite a lot of money to spend if if your manuscript is pretty clean and if you've got somebody who's who's proficient at copy editing themselves then you can probably get a 98 99 percent perfect manuscript without paying that kind of dollar money but if you want it you can buy it mm-hmm. and you, you get it to the same standard as the big five no problem at all um manuscript formatting for ebook i spent a hundred dollars and got a perfectly formatted ebook and indeed you, you can actually do that to better than big five publishing standards quite easily because <laughs> that's you true. Know, they are so print obsessed that they will design mm-hmm. the ebook to look like a print book and that's not really logical so that when you click the search inside feature you don't want to skip through pages of introduction and the author's note and thank you to my sister you, you don't want that you want a little bit of blow about the book maybe a handful of reviews and then you want the book and that is what will capture um i've seen big five published books one of them authored by somebody who was herself a kind of big league editor at a big league um publishing house where the kind of the book description on amazon did not describe the book and the search inside feature on amazon was so taken up with kind of authors notes and that kind of thing that that didn't tell you there, there was no actual content of the book and nothing to describe the book in the whole thing i Drop to note and said by the way you might want to <laughs> notice this so it's not like they've got some kind of magic formula that always does this right i think by being really focused on sales it's possible for indie authors and not obsessed about print it's possible for indie authors to do these sort of things better um then cover design that's another very important feature i think it is worth spending real money that i spent probably 700 something like that on sourcing multiple multiple designs from a kind of place where you put out a design brief to tender and people compete to kind of win the, win the contract.
1: Are you talking about something like 99 designs or did you use 99 99 designs? designs, Yeah. Okay.
0: That's the one I used. There Mm -hmm. are others. Um, And your cover is for this book is great. I I think so. And I think it's, you know, it's works well as a thumbnail. It's quite a, so it's a sort of an upside down tree. I mean, it's quite easy to recognize. Um, And yeah, you, you know, I think, that is a significantly better cover than I've had from most, not all, but most of the conventionally published books I've had in the past. And, you know, if I don't like it, I'll change it. If if, if I get negative, I've had good feedback on it. But if I had been getting negative feedback on it, I'd change the cover, which is something I have never been able right. to do with any single one of my um, conventionally published books. You've
1: also started a business called Agent Hunter. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Uh, okay, well, th- this is... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, the traditional way of looking for agents was you, you bought a big fat book that was not much more than a telephone directory with a list of names and addresses. And you kind of searched around more or less at random for for an agent who liked your work and wanted to represent you. So JK Rowling, for example, she picked Christopher Little out of a kind of literary agent's phone book, just because she thought the name was cute. Now that's a dumb way, you know, (laughs) that obviously turns out okay, but it's a dumb way to pick agents. And as there's more and more information out there, you now get sites like in the US. There's Agent Query, which that allows you some kind of search filters to filter through this massive online information to to pick out agents who might be suitable for you and your genre. We just took that idea and advanced it a notch. So we've got like, and this works really for UK agents, not US ones, but a massive search filter. So you should be able to say, I want an agent who likes crime fiction, who's looking to build their Um, list and who has a particular interest in noir detective fiction you should be able to kind of filter agents like that and so we built a site that was like what i would have wanted from a website if i was looking for a literary agent today Um, and again you know i find it mesmerizing in a way that creating things like that is left to little indie companies like ourselves why isn't the publishing industry doing that i mean the people who producing these big thick print directories of literary agents why aren't they figuring out a way to digitize that service in a way that's kind of rational for the 21st century but you know luckily they didn't and, and we did so um it's, it's a nice little business for us.
1: let's say people use a site like yours and come up with a list of agents how should they what should the querying process be like let's let's say i do i use your site and i get 50 agents what should i do
0: you probably want a sort of long list of, of two dozen, something like that, mm-hmm. and then work through that long list to find about a dozen names, I would think, that that seem to relate to to your work and the kind of authors you like. Um, and then the, the way it works in the US is a little different from the UK. In the US, you send a, a pitch letter where you're kind of pitching your book right. and saying, would you be interested in, in this material? In the UK, I think it's a bit more rational. The, the traditional way here is you send – yeah, you send a query letter. You send the first three chapters of your book, and really, all that matters is—is is the you know, does the agent like your writing? But in the US, you you send out a query letter saying, you know, do you is this the kind of thing you'd you'd be interested in in looking at? Some agents will also ask you to submit some opening material. Um, I think you should submit to about a dozen, perhaps fifteen agents in total. Make sure that those agents are, you know, carefully selected. If you're writing middle-grade fiction, don't send it some to somebody who only kind of wants Pulitzer Prize nonfiction. Um, but if you get rejected by 10, a dozen, 15 agents, I, I think it's probably a mistake uh, queering more and more and more agents. Because probably the issue is not with the agents. It's probably with the book. And you need to go back to the book and figure out what is editorially not quite right, what is not yet working, and fix that thing before going to more agents.
1: Harry, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. This has been really entertaining. I've learned some things, and I know that our listeners will have learned some things as well.
0: Fabulous. Well, I've really enjoyed it, too.
1: The book is The Strange Death of Fiona Griffiths. It's the third book in the Fiona Griffiths series. It's absolutely fabulous. I highly recommend it. If uh, people want to follow your work, Harry, what's the best way for them to do it?
0: Uh, yeah, just skip over to harrybingham.com, and um, on the contact page, there's a you can just sign up for my email list, and I'd, I'd love to have you. I welcome all readers.
1: Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mentioned during this episode, just check out the website at theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the show at the site by clicking the big green subscribe button or at iTunes or Stitcher. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site, or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. I'm Stephen Campbell, and I hope you'll join us again next time.